So I know everybody's probably excited to know that we're going to be in the book of Leviticus this morning. I'm not going to do a raise of hands, but I wonder how many people have had the best of intentions in reading through their Bible in the year, and this is where things kind of went sideways, right? Some of you, I don't know where the year-long Bible readings are right now, but we're in March, or no, April, so who knows? You may have already got there and been like, I wish he wouldn't have brought that up, right? And many of you have read Genesis and Exodus a whole bunch of times, (laughs) right? Maybe next year just start with Leviticus, or God will still love you if you skip it. But we're going to see today why I think it's very important. Even the things that we've sang about this morning, about the preciousness of the blood of Jesus. You know, why why do we say that? Why is it precious? Why is it important? Why would another culture or people who weren't raised in church be really scared right now or weirded out that we're talking and even singing about blood? You know, those of us who've grown up in church, that doesn't feel strange to us. But let me tell you, it would be strange, right? And the climax of our gathering is going to be taking and drinking a symbol of blood. And so we need to understand why these things are not only important, but they're vital for our lives. And the book of Leviticus is a book that helps us do that, and it's actually one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. And so we're going to read this whole chapter. I know that's going to challenge our short attention spans, but we're going to read the whole chapter So then as I I preach on this text, uh, you can refer back to this initial reading. And so if we run out of time, also you've heard the whole chapter. So Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place. So it's not to do it like these sons of Aaron did it, but this is how. With a bull from the herd from a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Remember these two goats. We're going to focus on them a little bit today. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement, another word we're going to underline today, for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, or scapegoat. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. 
And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15. Then he shall kill the first goat, the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel." Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Second goat. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness." The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shake off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. Then he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And for the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins." It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your holy, loving commitment to be one with us. We need your help to understand what you were doing in this history of your redemption that we hear about in the book of Leviticus, this day of atonement. Would you help us today, Holy Spirit, to know your word is truth. Would you help us to know it is the truth that sets us free as it points us to the one who is our freedom, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. He washed his hands until they were bleeding. I read a story of a, of a child growing up in London with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorders, whose life became dominated by this fear of, of never being truly clean to the point that he would wash his hands to clean them that they would bleed with the only problem being that now his hands were bloody and thus to him unclean. So he lived in this vicious cycle of working to find rest, but in that, re in that work only finding himself at greater unrest. It broke his family's heart as their lives were dominated by this because his life was dominated by it because nothing was ever enough. It was never finished. I've heard similar stories even here in our church with people who have struggled with something very similar. This behavior, this disorder, and I'm calling it that to dignify it, not to demean it, may seem strange or even extreme to most, but I wonder if there's a way that all of us in here can relate to the stains in our life to the feeling that we're just never clean enough, that our sins have not been covered enough, that they haunt us. And we have our own compulsions, that is, our own repetitious, mental or physical or relational actions that we feel compelled to do to deal with that. to that sense that we are not whole inside, to that sense that our relationships remain broken, tainted, or stained. The reality is, is that every person in this room comes into a disordered world. We are people who are divided from God, separated from the One whom we were created to find our wholeness in. And there are some of us in here who are dealing with that by performing. You're trying to be the best that there can be, and you have your compulsive actions that you do. Some of you read your Bible so that you feel clean. Some of you may very well be here this morning because you have stains, but you have separations in your life. And you've come here merely to perform another ritual that you hope will get that monkey of guilt or shame or fear off your back for another week. Some of you aren't performing. Others of you are pretending. That is, you're being something you know that you're not. And still others of you are just kind of trying to pass on it altogether. You're trying to act like it's not a big deal. But if you're honest, deep down inside, you are plagued 
by this sense that there's a stain that you can't wash off and there's a separation, a gap that you cannot close. The reality is, the whole story of God tells us that we are not a people who are whole because we are a people who have ran away from a relationship with a God who is holy. Oftentimes when we think about the holiness of God, we simply think of His unique and utter perfection, which that is true, but it is in that holiness that God created us to find our wholeness. We were made in His image first and foremost so that we might relate with Him, so that we might find our fullness with Him. You were made to walk with God in the cool of the day, naked and unashamed. with no fear of condemnation, with no temptation to pretend, no temptation to perform, or no temptation to run and hide. That's what every human being on the face of the earth was created for, to flourish in the fullness of a holy God. And everybody in this world is trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that that is not how they experience their everyday life. But it's why Jesus came. He came to restore the oneness with God that we were created for. He came to bring atonement to the separation of that relationship. That is, He came to make us one with God again. To cover us. To cleanse us. And to carry away all that stands in the way of a restored relationship with God. And the implications of that restored relationship with God, restored relationships with others, with ourself, and in the world in which we live. And we can try many things, but the only way that we have this restoration in the soul of who we are is that we must have God's atonement if we are to experience God's rest. Or we will be like the person who fights and works to clean ourselves, only finding ourselves more defiled in the end. So how do we see this? How are we led in this text to be made whole by, by God through this atonement? The first thing we see here is we've got to acknowledge that we need this atonement. There, there can be no restoration if we are not honest with ourselves about the separation. You notice verses 1 and 2, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. We don't have to, time for, to go back and relay this whole story, but if you go to Leviticus chapter 10, that's the last part in the narrative that's happened, the story that's happening in Leviticus. Chapters 11 through 14 have talked about these food laws, laws of cleanliness, laws of purity. But the last thing that happened in the story was Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, thought they could approach the holy God in a careless and trivial way. God had gave them a very specific way that He could be in relationship with them because He wanted that relationship, but they didn't take it seriously. They didn't take God seriously, and they were consumed by the power of His presence. 
So as God gives these instructions to Aaron about how he is going to perform in this day of atonement, Moses relaying to him is like, we know how not to do it. If the people of God want to experience a restored relationship with God, if they want to have a purified place and be a purified people where they can dwell with Him and He with them in their midst, then they must acknowledge that there is a problem. So in verse 2, Aaron is called to, come, to not come if he's to come as they came, or he will be consumed. The conclusion of this matter is that we were made for this intimacy with God. But we cannot make our way into this intimacy on our own. If we go back to that image of us being created to walk with God in the cool of the day, if we go back to Eden in that garden, I think it's really helpful for us to, to understand, and we may refer back to this, is that Moses is writing these first five books of the Bible through the Spirit. And when Eden is being described, and y'all can go study this on your, your own, don't have time to bear it out, what we're seeing is that Eden actually was the first tabernacle. And if you go to the end of the Bible, guess what the whole earth is going to be in the end? A temple. So I don't think I'm stretching stuff here. Lots of other people said the same. This is what we were made for. This was the pattern of the world, and this is the trajectory all things are going towards. Is that we live in this perfect communion with God in the stuff of everyday life. But in the story, people tried to make it on their own. This is what our, our first human ancestors, Adam and Eve, did. It's similar to Nadab and Abihu. They said, we can be God. It wasn't that Adam and Eve were rejecting God. It's not that Nadab and Abihu were rejecting God. It's just they were trifling with God. They were acting as if they could be God too. As if, the one, as if there was no creator-creature distinction. God had given them everything that they needed, but they wanted more. And in seeking to find a greater wholeness outside of God, which cannot be found, they found their very destruction. And from the beginning of this story, we see that God must make a way if there is to be a way. Recently, I uh, was a part of this kind of music thing with some guys around celebrating an artist, Guy Clark. I don't probably know many people in here know this guy. Not vouching for him. I always say that. Somebody said when I say that about movies, they're like, well, you obviously are. But anyway, not vouching for him. But he's got a song that's called Maybe I Can Paint Over That. And it's where he outlines various sins and outbursts and stupid stuff he's done in his life. And he's like, well, maybe I could paint over that. And as this song was going on, I started to think back to, yeah, I got some of those maybe I can paint over that moments in my life. Some of them are kind of silly. I told some of you about this recently. One night when I pitched a big fit, something mad at home, I took a peanut butter sandwich and threw it against a wall as hard as I could. That really shows you're a big, strong man, doesn't it? 
If that's not embarrassing enough, the embarrassing part is when you have to then go clean that up off the wall in front of your family. Your, your nice display of dominance is now wiping peanut butter off a wall. And the kind of paint we had or whatever, it's just like, that's not totally working. You may have some of your funny, maybe I can paint over that stories. Some sheetrock that's had to be repaired. I know, you know who I'm talking to. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> There's also some stories that aren't funny. We got those two. Ones that I don't want to remember, but things remind me of. The stains that I've left on relationships. The sins that I've committed against God in the secret. The suffering, the evil, the lust, the laziness, the gluttony, the doubt, the vengeful imaginations towards people, and all my own pretending and performing and passing on God. The refrain in that song says this, maybe I can paint over that, but it'll probably bleed through. Maybe I can paint over that, but I can't hide it from you. Now he's singing this to a friend or a lover, I'm sure, but as I heard that, I thought about that almost as a song. Is I might can hide a lot from y'all, but God knows my heart. And apart from His grace, it can be a dark, black, evil space sometimes. There's a separation from His holiness that is real. The world might tell us it's irrational. It's just in our heads. That we've been brainwashed. We've grown up in these religious cultures that just make us feel guilty, make us feel shame. But what's real, if you look across all time and history and cultures, you'll see these sacrificial systems just popping up everywhere. Why is that the case? It's not because somebody was raised as a, a, in an evangelical culture that some tribe out in the middle of the nowhere is thinking they're going to have to kill something to make this right. It's because ever since that separation from God has been formed, is we've known deep down things are not whole. Things are not right. There's this instinct in us that evil has been committed, that sin has happened, and that a penalty needs to be paid. That nagging in your heart is not because you were indoctrinated to grow up and feel this way. It's because you are facing guilt and shame and fear, some of that unhealthy and some of that very healthy. 
And you know no matter how much the world tells you to just forgive yourself or break free from the shackles of your oppression through your biblical upbringing, you know deep down there's something more primal, something more deep that's going on. And everybody's trying to cope with it. This, this longing for atonement is not something happening just in our Christian circles, but look, look in the world of unbelievers. People are rushing and running in their lives to try to cover up, trying to cleanse themselves, or trying to have their past carried away. And how's that working for everybody? We're more anxious than ever. We're more exhausted than ever. We're more competitive than ever. We're more raging than ever. Because we need to be made whole. But does God want to make us whole? That's an important question. Does God want the rebels to be brought home? Does God want to be near to people who are messy? Does God want to step into the, the living rooms of, with the peanut butter stains on the walls? Does He want to step into the stories of great sins that we've committed and great sins that have been committed against us? Into a world that is impure, does He want to stay distant or does He want to come near? Does God still want to dwell with you? Well, the rest of this chapter is a loud and glaring yes that's pointing us to an even louder and more glorious yes. This day of atonement would have been a day of great anticipation in the life of the people of Israel. There would have been other sacrifices that were offered. You can read Leviticus 1-6 through to, to see the spelling out of these. But every year there would have been this anticipation for this one day when there were, you know, if just that everything would be taken care of. Because if we, if we had to go offer a sacrifice every time we committed a sin in this day and time, We'd be running out of animals, wouldn't we? Or I would be, right? They'd look at our house and they'd say, well, y'all are farmers. Y'all must really love hamburger meat or goat meat. And we'd be like, no, we don't even eat them. They're just all for our sins. And we don't have enough. But God provided even in this point in redemptive history that there would be this day where, where everything, even for the people who were doing the best they could, but couldn't do enough because we never can. Or you could know our sins are paid for. Our sins are cleansed. Some of you guys who just do your laundry occasionally know what I'm talking about. It piles up. It gets overwhelming. Well, there was a day where it was going to get cleaned and get done. And God provided a priest. This is what verses 3 and 6, and this is why we read them all at the beginning so that I don't read them all right now the priest would be provided. He would be given a way to come into the holy place so that a sacrifice could be offered. 
That's in verses 3 and 6. In verses 7 through 10, the preparations would be provided. So God not only said, I'm going to provide the person who can lead you to this place so that we can be one. I'm going to provide all the things that you need and the way to do it. And then in verses 11 through 14, we see this picture of Aaron, the priest, going in and doing these rites of purification. He's, he's got the incense going. I saw some steam coming up back there a minute ago from the coffee or something. And I thought, that's, that's what was going on. That's strange for us. Right? But it, it was a picture of, of this fog that like when the Lord passed before Moses on the mount, He was able to dwell with Him and not be consumed. So the incense would come up as a sign of of that intimacy and yet still that holiness of God respected. And then there was this blood that was sprinkled. Lots of blood being sprinkled in this chapter that may seem strange to us, that may seem pagan to us, but let's remember it's the pagans who are disordering the practices of God and not the other way around, contrary to what you may be told. Because blood was a symbol of life. Leviticus makes that clear in the next chapter that blood was a symbol for life. It's not like, let's get gory. And the only thing that can defeat the wages of sin, which is death, is life. We can never separate sin and death. They go hand in hand. And we can never separate blood and life. This was, this was Aaron symbolically showing that life beats death. So Aaron then takes this first of two goats in verses 15 through 19. And he offers a sacrifice that brings purification for the holy place. That is, when sin enters the world, everything is stained, everything is tainted. So it's not only the people that need to be purified here, it's the place that needs to be purified because God is going to dwell with His people, live in their midst through this tabernacle and one day through this temple. But verse 15 tells us that this goat is killed and it is killed as a sin offering. Now what does a sin offering have to do with the purification of the place? It's because again, it is the sin of the people that has called the place to be defiled. And so this goat is killed in the place of the people. Its blood is offered, brought inside the veil, sprinkled on the mercy seat. And verses 16 and 17 tell us that atonement is made for the place. That is, God provides a substitutionary sacrifice that purifies a place that God's people can have atonement for their sins and so that He might dwell in their midst. And then there's the second goat, verses 20 through 22. And in this beautiful picture of sin not only being all, not only being covered through a sacrifice that is offered, now we see this picture of our sins carried away. There's this strange word you heard us read in there a little bit, Azazel. 
there's a lot of different theories around it, but, but mainly it's saying this to the desolate place. It's, going to, it's being carried out to no man's land. It's being carried out to nowhere. And there's this beautiful picture here. Notice in verse 20. He's made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting, that is the tabernacle and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So whereas one is killed as a substitutionary sacrifice for the people, one is alive. But what does Aaron do in verse 21? He lays both of his hands on the head of the live goat. Just imagine this. And he confesses over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions and all their sins. I think these pictures are good for us, right? That's why we do the picture Jesus has given us every week. One of the reasons. He commanded us to. These pic- this picture we're going to get to in the Lord's table is bound up in these pictures. And what is this picture? Here's Aaron putting his hands on this goat and he's confessing all of the sins of the people. And what is he doing in doing that? He's laying their sins on that goat. There's, there's a transfer that's taking place symbolically here. So verse 22, the goat... Wait, continue, I didn't finish. And he shall put them on the head of the goat, there's the transfer, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And then the goat, verse 22, shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. What is going on here? There is this picture that is being displayed of what takes place through the atoning work of these sacrifices that are offered unto God. Is There is not only a purification for our sins through an atoning sacrifice that has been offered for people so that we might dwell with God, but there is another fancy word, expiation, a carrying away of our sins. They're being sent to no man's land. They're being cast as far as the east is from the west. Israel's sins have been purified in the sacrifice of the first goat and have been put away in the release of the second goat, which most people would be the assumption is that goat is going to die out there in that wilderness. It goes nowhere to die. And after this, in verses 23 through 28, we see Aaron changes his clothes. There's a final burnt offering offered as a dedication to the Lord as another part of this restoration of relationship because we have to remember that the goal is not simply that sins are forgiven on some type of cosmic ledger, but so that men and women now can dwell with God in a restored relationship. Everybody that was a part of it cleans up gets their stuff together, and comes back home because it's finished. Now I just want you to imagine with me the sigh of relief. The sigh of relief when the people that are in proximity see, here, here they all come. It's done. 
It's done. One of my brothers uh, was working a very low-paying job for a while early on in his life. This has been many years ago. And he, he had accumulated quite a bit of debt building this house and working hard. And it, and it led to him having to work all kinds of extra jobs to pay on this debt. So he would work all day at a job, paving roads, asphalt. Do you know anything about that? Not a lot of fun. And then he'd come home and he would mow yards all night. So he's exhausted. Well, little did, little did he know is my dad was all, also working, but working for him. And one Christmas, y'all have heard me share stuff about my dad. Not perfect, right? Uh, but it's a good dad. Love him. One year at Christmas, it's over. This is totally his style. He likes to do Christmas is over and then like, surprise. <laughs> so Christmas is over. Everybody's finished. It's, we're all wore out, right? Because it's this American <laughs> Christmas vomit of overwhelming stuff. And if that's not enough, hey, can everybody come back in here right quick? And he says, hey, Jess, it's my brother's name. What's that over there? And at the time, my brother was not in a good place. If you would have knew him, he was far from God. He was not performing as a son. The stage of our life where if he shows up to a birthday party, it's like, what state's he going to show up in? But there it is, that envelope. And I remember my brother getting it and look, opening it and looking in that envelope and his jaw just dropping. Because that envelope had a note in it that said, your debt's paid off. It's finished. You don't got to keep killing yourself anymore. You, you, don't gotta, you don't have to keep performing. He didn't say all this. This is what I'm hearing. You don't got to keep pretending. You're loved. Now, he could have rejected that. He could have resented it. Or he could have reinterpreted it as something other than love. So can we. Is this ours? Or is this just some strange ancient Near Eastern religious ritual that a people in the, in the Middle East did a long time ago that we can be curious about? No. Because what God was doing here was He was providing for them a way to have a relationship with them that is paving the way for all of us, for the world even as we read in 1 John chapter 2 this morning to experience an abiding relationship with God where we know there is therefore now no condemnation. There's, we're not servants of God paying off a debt. We're sons and daughters of God enjoying a relationship. That we have been given a high priest 
who needed no atonement to be made on his behalf like Aaron did. Hebrews 7 says, For indeed it was fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heaven. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. God has given us a high priest who has been tempted in every way that we are, Hebrews says, but was not ever in sin. He knows the sin that we face in its temptations. We, he knows the sufferings that we face in His experience. He knows the Satan that we face with his lies. And he steps into that place. He goes to the cross. As we need to be coming this time of year especially, but every day. He goes to the cross. That's that first goat. It's that sacrifice that purifies a place and purifies us for that place to meet with God. A God who is holy and just and we can meet with Him and not deserve that justice anymore. And He meets with a God who doesn't lower that holiness because if He were to lower that holiness, then when we got to Him, He would not be the God that we were created to need. Romans 3, 23-25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation that is an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God doesn't just love you. God likes you. He wants to be with you. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have conspired together in their great eternal covenant that they might come and make us one with God. But a ransom had to be paid. It's another word for this word atonement is ransom. Remember, as Moses writes these words in Leviticus, he's the same one who wrote the words of Genesis and the words of Exodus. He's told us what He means by atonement already if we just read in context that this word kafir is a word that speaks to atonement of a price getting paid to restore a relationship. The greatest example in the book of Exodus is if, if someone's bull gores someone on your property, then you have to kill that bull but if you knew that that bull was a bull that gores people, then not only the bull is to be killed, but you are. Unless a ransom's paid. 
filled into the law of God is atonement. That relationship can be restored. But the offended party gets to choose whether they will show mercy or vengeance. Whether they will receive a ransom or get their revenge. A ransom, an atonement, is a guilty giving to the innocent party who accepts payment. That delivers a person from punishment and restores peace to the relationship. And this is what's amazing in the atonement that God brings for us, is He is the one who is offended, but He's also the one who gives the payment. This is Jesus going to the cross in unity with the Father. This is His own praying, I will... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then praying in the garden, oh, that this cup might pass, is because he knows that he is going to bear the penalty for the sin of the world so that as he dies on that cross, the veil of the temple might be torn in two through the offering of his blood so that me, we might have a restored relationship. That's why Paul writes in Colossians, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is why Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. This is why this is so relevant is God not only really wants to have a relationship with you, God has taken care of everything that is needed for you to have that relationship. All that we need to do is learn to do nothing but come to Him. And this is how the chapter ends. In a phrase that at first might seem off-putting, but I think should make sense to us. What are they to do? Every year they're to practice this. And in practicing this, verses 30 through 34 say they are to practice it as a Sabbath. That is, as a time of rest. And how are they going to practice this Sabbath? They are going to afflict themselves. That's the part that might seem off-putting. What do you mean afflict ourselves? Am I supposed to beat myself? No. This is how they're to afflict themselves. And this is how we are too. Rest. Stop working. Stop trying to prove yourself through your life and your effort and your success and your cover-up schemes and your performing and your pretending. You might be scratching your head. That doesn't sound like afflicting myself. Well, go try it. A few of us this past week went and afflicted ourselves with silence and solitude before the Lord. And it became very clear to me is I don't know how to simply just sit and be with God and not have anything to show for it. Not some great Bible study, not some great journal reflection. 
But He commanded them to do that. He commanded them to believe it is finished. You don't got to work off any debts anymore. There's nothing for you to do to cover that stain. You are clean. There's nothing you need to do to cover up your shame. You are beloved. You are seen. You are known. And there's nothing you've got to do to get, to get that thing away so it doesn't come back and get you. Because Jesus has went outside the camp. And next week we'll see He came back. He came back. So now Sabbath is our life. I had two grandmothers, both that I really loved. But at one of their houses, I could rest, and at another one, I felt like I walked on eggshells. Because I felt like I never did enough or did it right enough. As I've heard recently, you, you can never feel loved by someone that you think you can never please. And I would say you can never feel rest with someone that you think you can never do enough. But the gospel of the Day of Atonement that comes to us in Jesus is you don't got to do nothing else. So if we are to have rest with God, then we must receive the atonement of Christ. And we're not commanded to do the Day of Atonement anymore because Jesus has came and fulfilled it. As He comes as the Passover Lamb, His blood is shed in our place, but so He's commanded us to do something else to remember it. And we call it communion or the Lord's Supper. And it's why we do it every week. And for some of you, it may be an affliction. Right? You're hungry. But in a second, we're going to afflict ourselves and we're going to stand around these tables and we want to look at one another and say, none of us have anything to prove to anybody because it's finished. None of us have anything to prove to God because it is finished. And our own worst enemy ourselves, none of us have anything to prove to ourselves because it is finished. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've received that, that blood of Jesus, His life is your life, then take the bread and the cup and rejoice around the table. If you're not, we, we ask that you would consider to come to Jesus and to receive His finished work. But you can still stand with us and listen and even share if you want to. But let's pray and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Father, we thank You that You have given us atonement, that You have made us one. You have restored the relationship by not calling us to ignore our sins and sufferings, but by paying for them and providing us a way. As we come to the table now, may you help us rejoice. May you help us to share with one another the ways that your atoning sacrifice gives us freedom. Freedom to enjoy you and freedom to enjoy life together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.